And now, coming to you live from Burlington, Massachusetts, and ReaderCon, it's the Coot Street Podcast, with special guests John Crowley and Peter Straub. That didn't work. That's and cool. welcome to Massachusetts for those of you who are stranded in Perth. Mm-hmm. Well, well, do you figure that's the default condition, Gary, if you're in Perth? Stranded. I suppose so, but if you if you've never been in Burlington, Massachusetts, have you? I have never it's been just, in Burlington. It's not actually in Boston. It's barely in Massachusetts, and it's not actually anywhere else. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you, John, for joining us. Thank you. And My pleasure. Thank you, Peter, for joining us again. It is also a pleasure for me. And I can't wait to find out what we're going to talk about. What we're going to talk about is this. Uh, it's going to start with an observation that, that John made this afternoon. John uh, had put together very generously what turned out to be a delightful panel on the Library of America volumes, uh, which I edited, and mentioned to me afterwards that his first book, was that Engine Summer? No, it was The Deep. The Deep. The Deep. Had a cover by Richard Powers. Wow. And Richard Powers, a Richard Powers cover links you to the great science fiction tradition of the 50s. Huh. Yes, it does. <clears throat> to which I would otherwise not be uh, linked in in much of any way at all. I mean, I am linked to the great uh, science fiction tradition of the 50s in that I lived in the 50s. <laughs> and <clears throat> by that old wheeze uh, attributed to many smart people back then, the golden age of science fiction, which is 12. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, But I was 12. I was 12 in 1953 when... Space Merchants was was published. Perfect. Now, I don't think I read The Space Merchants in 1953, Mm. but I read an awful lot of other stuff of various kinds in 1953 of that sort and read it for the next two or three years, four or five years maybe, until I stopped reading it all together. I gave it up and started reading great literature. I was a little ashamed of that kind of reading. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was reading that sort of thing. I was also beginning to read, you know, Milton's sonnets and all of other <laughs> odd things uh, that a teenager should not have been reading. But uh, so, it, yes, it is connected to that. I, I did read. I probably read Asimov. I probably read uh, Olaf Stapledon. I probably mm. read an awful lot of stuff that, that was available in the early 1950s, mid 1950s. And the first thing of yours that I read was Engine Summer, which seemed to me to be, outside of it being gorgeously written, something that was vaguely in that region of Bradbury and Sturgeon and, and language-sensitive science fiction, which was a subset of what we didn't thought of. Well, when fiction. I when I first wrote *Engine Summer*, I had not read science fiction in 20 years mm-hmm. and did not and thought of it as being stuff like space opera, mm-hmm. and did not did not connect what I was thinking of at all with science mm-hmm. fiction at all. It was only after I finished. Writing a draft of it, which was, and it turned out it was a very odd book. Of, mm-hmm. of, I thought it had no nameable precedence at all, mm-hmm. and uh, it was about the future, but but uh, not in the way that science fiction seemed to me to predict the future. Went back when I read it, mm-hmm. so it didn't seem to me to be any any relative of science fiction at all. Mm-hmm. It was only when it was done and was this large mass of paper that oh. really made no not much sense. That I then said, all right, well, that was fun. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book. I got to the end of it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I'll write one that somebody will want to read <laughs> and could be published, possibly, in mm-hmm. which case, so that under those circumstances, I actually chose to write a science fiction novel. Uh-huh. Actually, yeah. right. write one set on another planet and has an adventure in it and all that. And that was. Was the Deep, which was deep, the first yeah. of first of mine to be published. Engine oh. Summer itself did wasn't get wasn't wouldn't okay. be published for another five or six years, okay. because after I actually then remodeled it also into something. Now that I knew, and I, at this point I started reading science fiction yeah. again. So I read Tom Dish and I read R. A. Lafferty and I read uh, the Ace Science Fiction Specials and I read all that kind of. Mm. And I realized, oh my God, this is great stuff. <laughs> this is not what I thought. This is not what I used to read back in grade school. This Probably is something really special. Right, that kind of stuff. And, mm. Yeah, and Le Guin and uh, uh, Brian Aldiss and all that, you know, mm. English stuff. Ballard. I thought this Ballard. was wonderful well, stuff. Well, you heard that stuff too, but you never tried to write science fiction. No, I didn't. I am... Um, I at the you know the the golden age I I, I, I fell upon a bookstore rack in in, in a, a nearby drugstore and I discovered Ace Doubles 
And I was instantly hooked, like um, I was mainstreaming science fiction then. And um, I, I, I remember being very affected by the, what is a terrible novel, really, Slan by Amy Van Vogt. Have you ever read that? No, I it's might a, have, but I don't remember it. If it's I did. really bizarre. It has a lot of stuff about the, um, in the superiority of Aristotle over Plato. So in the you know seventh grade, I used to wander around saying to my little friends, you know, Aristotle is really so much more about than Plato. <laughs> the world of null A. Null A meaning the non-Aristotelian yeah. uh, logic system or something like that. It was completely bizarre. He was making this up out of whole cloth. Yeah. But it sounded great because I did. I read the same. Same thing at the same time. If you're 14 years old, and here's this guy that tell, basically telling you you don't have to read Aristotle or Plato, because <laughs> he's going to explain it all. For he's you. got it all all laid out. Anyhow, so I I I I read everything I could find. I had a kind of a weakness for Zena Henderson. Uh, the, people. the people. The people. I I, I I like that whole idea, and uh, I read you know the Judith. Judith Merrill anthologies, and I, I just inhaled it, and, and I talked to, about it to uh, anybody I could uh, make stand still, you know, long <laughs> of, and I raved about how great the science fiction was. And then when I went to high school, everything changed. I, how old are you when you're in the ninth grade? 14? 14, 14. 13, 14. I wandered into, into the fiction section of my school's library, which was in like a cloak room at the back of the main library. Mm -hmm. and, and there were bookshelves on both sides. And I wandered along thinking, well, I might as well try some of this stuff. And I picked the, you know, the biggest, the fattest novel <laughs> I could find, which was uh, Of Time and the River by Thomas <laughs> Wolfe. And I thought, Of Time and the River, that's got to be great. <laughs> and, and uh, I, I, I was a convert instantly because it was a novel about uh, the, the terrible uh, predicaments and tortures of uh, sensitive um, <laughs> young men, uh, literary yeah. young men. So the, I, I was a goner. I mean, I was. Then I went around buttonholing people about Thomas Wolfe, and 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 I read everything of that, and then I read the writers that Wolfe talked about in his books. Mm -hmm. and, and and then I went on like a paper chase mm -hmm. and that finally wound up with James Joyce. Leslie Fiedler, the American critic, has this <clears throat> wonderful notion that the great, I'm not sure it still applies, but in his day, 40, 50 years ago, it did apply. The great books of the American tradition have mostly spent some time as boys' books yes. on the boys' shelf. Huh. Huh. James Fenimore Cooper, Moby Dick, yeah. uh, Huckleberry, you know, Huckleberry Finn. Finn, they've all done that. Mm. He says the ones that miss that end up as books for adolescents. Which <laughs> 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 is where Thomas Wolfe yeah, comes absolutely. in. Yeah, absolutely. That's where Thomas Wolfe comes in, probably where Salinger came Salinger, yeah. too, yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Great, but but not hitting that, that, no. that little sweet spot of the boys' book, which, of course, you know, also holds Treasure Island and a bunch of other books that Absolute. aren't American. Treasure so. Island is yeah. an amazing book. It's Treasure Island is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It's yeah. a masterpiece. It really um, is. But so, so you both started, it's interesting because both of you have similar backgrounds, reading the same stuff. Jonathan, I bet you did too, but we all started, yeah. everybody, you have to read Van Gogh, right? <laughs> as Brian Aldous used to say, Van Gogh. Or Van Gogh, <laughs> or as Leslie Fiedler said at a conference I was at once, they were all giving very highfalutin papers about Le Guin and Lim and literary mm -hmm. uh, and, and science fiction. And, and, and he, Van, well, Leslie Fiedler was deliberately perverse anyway. Yes. But his, his entire talk was about Van Vogt. And he said, whatever you think about Van Vogt literally, he said, any high school student, he was being optimistic about high school students <laughs> by today's standards, he said, any high school student could point out the manifold failures of Van Vogt as a, as a novelist, as a prose stylist, as a sentence writer, as a paragraph writer. What you can't explain, what they can't explain, what normal literary criticism can't explain is why Van Vogt works. Yes. Why every generation discovers Van Vogt and yeah. you plow through this stuff 
And at some, yes, at some point you come out the other end and realize that was utter nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the question I tried to raise in addition in in relation to your Library of America volumes. Mm -hmm. And something that I have to try to explain to, to writing students that I talk to about this stuff, mm -hmm. and why it is, in my opinion, as, in a certain sense, nearly impossible to teach writing if the person is interested in writing science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. Because there is a distinction between what is good mm -hmm. and powerful and working in that and what is good writing. And they really don't have much to do with each it's other. It's not necessarily mm. the same thing. Right, it's not the same no, thing. It's and it's the only, the only mode, I mean, I suppose you could say there are crime novels and stuff like that that are the same, and they have mm. bad writing, but they're uh, superior crime mm. novels. I mean, I can't, I can't, I, mean, I find it very difficult to read any of the, that kind of book. I can mm. read science fiction that's not well written, or fantasy yeah. that's not well written, because I like the ideas and I'm attracted to the visions that they produce. I can't do it with crime fiction. Mm. But I'm sure it's the same. It might be the same thing. So what is this about? What is this, what is this, I mean, you're, you're, you're an academic. You, Gary, you know how to analyze this question, do you not? Mm. If I did, I would be writing books about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to throw this to Jonathan. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think my, my, my thought is, uh, that there is an ideational adventure in science fiction that you don't get in almost any ideational kind of adventure. What a great term! Yeah. It's, it, 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 well, it's, it, that, that, that's a highfalutin academic term for what we used to call the sense of wonder. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a way of achieving that that has nothing to do with good writing. There's a uh, so you write that's science right. fiction. Of, well, two of the books that are in the Library of America series, and, and Jonathan, for our listeners, a parenthesis is that John very generously put together a panel discussion on the Library of America 50s volume. Yep. And one of the things that came out during the discussion is that two of the most popular novels in that series are uh, The Star is My Destination, which is The Count of Monte Cristo, and Heinlein's Double Star, which is The Prisoner of Zenda. Mm. Um, nobody cares, because what they do with those traditional romance plots is to vault them into that imaginative space which we always wanted to be in, and you can rewrite almost anything as science fiction and probably, to some extent, get away with it. Mm. Because what you're doing narratively is not, it's not a traditional narrative formula. You cannot describe the narrative formulas of science fiction the way you can describe the narrative formulas of hard-boiled crime fiction or, right, or classical mystery right. fiction and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but you can, That's right. you can begin to describe the ideational formulas, the formulas of relationship between the known and the unknown, the relationship right. between our experience and our possible experience. Right. And also, the thing is that I think science fiction works in a different way than crime, fiction, westerns, uh, in that the science fiction novel depends on the science fiction stuff. You can mm -hmm. write a crime novel that's essentially a love story, or yeah. essentially about mm -hmm. family, or essentially about something other, but there's a crime in it. Then yeah. you follow it, the crime is the spine right. in which is all organized, mm -hmm. but it's really not central to it. But right. You can't write a science fiction novel that has nothing to do with the science fiction stuff in the story. Right. The science fiction stuff in the story has to be the bearer of the meaning. Huh. And yep. and it fails if it doesn't, if it's not. But the, and, and I, I think wonder what, what it would look like if, if, if you tried to do it the uh, other way around. It probably look um, it would be very like, odd. Like a very bad meal. Hmm? I don't know. I don't know what it would be like. But I was. I think that um, <clears throat> uh, I one of the stories that I assigned to my class is uh, Robert Shaw's Light of Other Days. Um, look, um, the Light of Not Other Robert Days. Shaw. Not Robert Shaw. Uh, the Light of Bob Shaw. Bob Shaw. Uh, Bob Shaw. Bob Shaw. Yeah, Bob Shaw. Sorry. Okay, Robert, well, Robert Bob Shaw. Bob Shaw. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, it doesn't, I mean, it, it is, seems to depend upon that science fictional idea. Mm. And there's a relation between a lost past and the present and this mm. arguing couple. Mm. It yeah. doesn't ever quite exactly represent. Mm. The dilemma is presented in the story by this couple, which is going to, which is going to try mm. to build their own past that they can see into, their, their own present, which will become their past. Oh, wow. It doesn't really exactly work, and it's really interesting because of that. Huh. I think that, well, yeah, I think that's possibly true. Uh, it's a haunting image. It's an oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. The, the science fiction idea in the story is absolutely fascinating, yeah. but does it carry... The, does it connect with the, what the people want? There was a 
can, uh, can I, do I have time for a longish little anecdote here? I think so. I read a story, it was at Clarion, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, where I taught, which is the science fiction, you know, workshop. teaching workshop, and, and young people come in there who haven't published much. Woman wrote a story, young woman wrote a story in there that was so exactly representative of this that it was just too perfect. It was about mm-hmm. a family who had had a circus in outer space, mm-hmm. and they had all lived all, she'd lived all her life, she and her mother and father had lived all their lives in this outer space circus, in which they do all these elaborate acrobatics, mm-hmm. all dependent on zero gravity and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It was attacked by space pirates and ripped off, and they were, it was all destroyed, oh. and they father was killed, and the mother and father the mother and daughter decide they have to go to Earth to make a living now. Mm. They're stopped on a space station circling Earth Mm. where they have to live for a certain amount of time until they can prepare themselves for Earth gravity. Mm -hmm. What it is is a, a, uh, you know, it's going around in a circle, so they have centrifugal force making gravity. The wheel space station. Right, yes, but but you have different levels of gravity as you go outward. Mm. And you have to wear... You wear these outfits that hold you up because yeah. you can't stand Earth mm-hmm. gravity. But yeah. as you gradually work your way out, you take mm-hmm. off more and more of these these this outfit until you mm-hmm. actually can attain Earth gravity. Mm-hmm. The teenager girl wants to do this. The mother just can't do it. She stays in the center of the place where the gravity is more like back in outer space. Uh-huh. And the kid is trying to get her mother out of bed and trying mm. to get her to, come on, mom, we've got to do this. I mm. can't live here. We can't, we have to go down to earth. We have to live. And mm. she keeps going outward and she keeps having like adventures with people who are farther and farther outward. Mm. And she gets stronger and stronger and more yeah. and more able. And you say, oh, it's perfect. It is a science. It's a story about a kid growing up and leaving home and getting, mm-hmm. becoming a grown-up person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was cast in entirely these science, science fiction, fiction terms. Yeah. So the science fiction terms carry the weight of the meaning of the story. Oh, that's interesting. Did the story get published? I don't know. I never oh, heard anything more about it. Yeah, but such a good story. I've never, no, I've never heard of it. Huh. I don't think it. I doubt it did get published. Huh. But when you mentioned the light of other days, the thing that came to my mind was your story, Snow. Which oh, has yes. some of the same aspect, <clears throat> yes. mm-hmm. the same sense that you know memory degrades in some way that we can't stop, mm-hmm. and which is not news except it it, it 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 functions as a science fictional concept in the story, without which there's no story. Right, exactly. And it just is, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is one of my favorite. I, I should I should mention since I probably haven't before the two of my favorite science fiction stories ever. One is that. And the other, which I think is one of the three or four definitive time travel stories, is Great Book of Time. Ah, uh, right. And Jonathan agrees with me. Am I right? Very much, yes. Okay. Also, because I have to agree, <laughs> you just put me on the spot, but yes. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. But, well, the thing that... Uh, so, I'm sorry, Jonathan, did you want to... No, sorry. Okay. Well, so here's the thing. Both of you, Peter and John, grew up reading the same stuff that Jonathan and I grew up. And both of you at some point discovered... Henry James or yeah. John Milton or Prince Chandler. Mm-hmm. You discovered prose, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and then had a moment of going out, but both of you ended up back related to these fields. Yeah. You, know, you didn't decide to become Flannery O'Connor or William Faulkner or Catherine Mansfield <laughs> or John Updike or John Cheever. Well, Paul, but your first novel was, in fact. Your first, yeah. yeah. Well, right. and my and my uh, second, which was. Better than the first, but uh, not published for years uh, after. Um, the truth is, once uh, once I began w- working in um, within a, a, f- a framework of, um, of a story being defined by the kind of mode in which it falls, uh, I felt immediately immediately at home because of the nature of the structure around me. I, I, um, I responded to the idea that the novel I, I had just begun with my brave first sentence was going to have a lot to do with fear. Hmm. So it's not about ideas in, 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 in my case. Hmm. And it's not about science fictional constructs at all. But it's 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 about um, the underlying em- emotions, and once I 
managed to steer my little tricycle onto that particular path. Uh, I could go a lot faster. I could go a lot more smoothly, and I knew what I was doing, um, kind of instinctively. And did it did it actually give you form as well as concept? Not really, because well, perhaps it did, because I I still had in mind that the ideal version of the kind of thing I wanted to do would be the turn of the screw, uh -huh. and so so I wanted there to be in as much as I could make this happen an essential ambiguity mm -hmm. as as to the frights and terrors and et cetera in, 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 in the book. But um, the energy of the book comes from the literal horrors being understood to be real and, the, and they're quite nasty. Mm -hmm. And the, the um, which, which gives further weight to the idea that the supernatural operation if there is such a thing, it really does exist. That, uh, that the, the book kind of falls toward that camp, um, far more than uh, the turn of the screw did. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I had another, I, had, I did have a kind of a flirtation of science fiction uh, in my uh, late 20s and early 30s, mm -hmm. but, I, but it wasn't with writing, it was with reading it. Um, I, I, I read Camp Concentration, Mm -hmm. I read On Wings of Song mm -hmm. uh, and some other John Sladek novel and Ballard. And Ballard. I suddenly mm -hmm. read everything by Ballard I could find. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I loved the way the, the novels initially recapitulated each other. So you had the same structure and the same conclusion every single time. <laughs> and then became wilder and more These ragged. These were the early Ballard disaster novels. Yeah. The, 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 the drowned world. world. Yeah. The burning world. And the yeah. Crystal nowhere. world. Yeah. Yeah. That was very satisfying to me. <laughs> it was more or less the same book. It was the same book with different disasters. Yeah. <laughs> but once, then once he, he um, felt more armored, I guess, I... I I'd love to know what he was doing uh, mm -hmm. when the, the books got stranger and darker. Crash and the... Yeah, Crash. crash uh, then that crazy one about the traffic island. Oh. Concrete island. <laughs> right. and, and, and before that, Terminal Beach, which I thought Terminal was one of the most Beach. haunting stories at the time because it seems both science fictional and completely non-science fictional at the same time. Mm. Like, this place probably exists. It could exist. Right. And yet it's completely apocalyptic. It's so, like an Antonioni movie, that's what it reminded me of. It really yeah. was like that. It was, it, was, it was a little bit like early, very formalistic, like the last year's Marion Bad right. and uh, Risne. Oh, La Ventura. Antonio right. and La Ventura. <laughs> um, yeah. And to, to bring in some of your Australian colleagues, Jonathan. <laughs> yep. Last um, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Peter exactly. Weir. Yeah. Those, Peter Weir. those first two Peter Weir, Weir films were, right. were yeah, really were marvelous and spooky. Mm -hmm. Uh, science fiction without being science fiction. Science fiction without science fiction. I think yeah. that's fascinating. I think there is such a thing. There is such a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. There is such a thing as horror without horror. We we have we've, often spoken, we've often spoken about, about that. One of the things I thought like that. Yeah, was interesting. Well, actually, you got nominated. I don't know. Did you win the World uh, World Fantasy Award for Coppola? Or yeah, I did. Okay. Coppola's <laughs> not a fantasy novel. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Uh, it was a gesture on the part of my public. <laughs> well, what I like about that is that it confirms kind of what I had thought, mm -hmm. which is that what lay under the surface of that book was exactly the same kind of emotional material as as was as could be seen behaving in a more literal fashion in the books before it. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and, I think that Therefore, every single reviewer referred to it as a horror novel, though then, then they started saying things like, well, the characters aren't just characters, the characters are the novel, mm -hmm. which was um, rather good, I thought, because, <laughs> because more or less what I had in mind. And, and it's the way things turned out. I, um, I don't know. Well, why can't a horror novel exist in terms of characters rather than... Supernatural. They probably could probably more, more so than science fiction could. I mean, if uh, what John is saying is, uh, holds in every case. I think what John is saying holds, and I'm on a, I'm, oh, this, I'm so close to a hobby horse now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's non-fantasy fantasy. I think Mervyn Peak is not necessarily fantasy, but it certainly feels like fantasy. Absolutely. It's another world. Science fiction. Hmm? It's another world. It's like it's like Game of Thrones. But it's not yeah. impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's no. possible that Gormenghast could exist somewhere in our world. Right. Yeah. There's, there's no nothing. changes of the physics. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's no crossing that line. Right. Uh, horror fiction. One of the one of the novels that got nominated for a World Fantasy Award didn't, didn't win, I believe. Uh, was Silence of the Lambs. Oh right. Yeah. Which um, is not a fantasy novel. It's not, a fantasy not at all. Novel, no, but no. it has the affect. Right, but it also is has some of the shape <laughs> as do science fiction novels <laughs> and horror novels and ghost stories and of romance. Yeah. So if you're talking about the the category romance mm. as being the thing we all share and we all participate yeah. in, there are two. There are according to Northrop Fry, whose definitions of this of romance are the most thoroughgoing that I know of mm-hmm. in secular scripture. He says that there are the, the romance ideas which are in all old fiction and most new fiction, especially of science fiction, crime, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, are both in pure states in things like you know ghosts and supernatural mm-hmm. events and fairies and you know mm-hmm. all monsters and all that kind of stuff but they also exist in what he called displaced huh. fashion by being mm-hmm. transferred into real uh, or realistic settings without losing any of the power of their romantic romance Wonderful. itself yeah. so great. you know you have a novel about you know uh, crack family in the in the city, and they've got these two kids that they're not. Then the mother says she doesn't want to feed the kids anymore because they don't have enough money for crack. So let's take them out to the park and leave them there in the park. And the boy's got a bag of Doritos and he scatters it along the ground. But it all gets eaten by pigeons, and so then they get lost. And then they go to a bakery that looks deserted on this dark corner. But this little you know, yeah. So any story, any romance pattern yeah. like that can be displaced. And he's what. Fry asserted was that they all have these. You can't mm. write fiction in, almost in his terms. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, you can write Ulysses. I know, not well, Ulysses. No, Ulysses <laughs> is completely that part of that. Jalousy, you know, French Nouveau Roman yeah. maybe yeah. doesn't have maybe any of doesn't. these things. That, but almost all fiction that consists of storytelling has some of these romance elements. So that the readers of them, it shouldn't surprise you at all that. The Silence of the Lambs gets 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 They're responding to because they're right. They're they're responding to the romance secret. Yeah, you know, within these sort of realistic. Okay, let me throw this back at you because I would argue I've got this, which I've I've never done this before, but Jonathan and I have talked about this. What I call trapdoor science fiction stories or trapdoor stories that have. One element in them that permits a reading in a certain way. Oh. My, my, our, our, my, my classic example is a story that Jonathan bought. Karen Joy follows the Pelican Bar. Oh. Pelican Bar is, in Karen's mind, completely a science fiction story. It's a story about a young woman who's a drug abuser, and Jonathan, correct me if I'm not summarizing this right, but she's had serious behavioral problems. Yeah. She is abducted and taken away to a brutal, uh, fascistic correctional camp for for uh, for young adolescents. And, and kids actually die at this camp. And mm. she's there for apparently, what is it, years? Yeah. Or at least months. And at some point, Mama Strong, who is who's the overseer of this camp, um, tells her, you can go. And she goes and she goes out into the, into, into the, into the sea and finds this bar called the Pelican Bar where she heard her parents were living. Mm. And... Does she find her parents or not? No, I think so. Mm-hmm. Bars and sand bar or bars it's and sand tavern. bar. It's a sand bar. Okay. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And coming coming back in the coast, she she on the beach. She meets this Mama Strong character, and the Mama Strong character is just says one line to her. Says something like, "I don't know why you're complaining about the way we were treated. You 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 humans have treated each other that way since the uh. beginning of history." <laughs> uh. That's it. That, Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's the one line in the story. Yeah, it tells you. <laughs> so I was talking earlier today with, mm-hmm. I think with Liz Hand, about Four Freedoms. And we were talking about crypto aviation. Oh. <laughs> and, and Four Freedoms is a gorgeous mainstream novel. It's brilliant. I love it. Uh, but it has a completely fake alternate history of aviation. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Especially early, not only early aviation, there's also 
some fake early sound recording history in it. I okay, hey, that. That. Yeah, but right. the point is, is that mm -hmm. enough to make it a science fiction novel for those of us who want to read it that way? <laughs> sure. For those of you who want to read it that way, definitely. How could I argue with that? <laughs> of course it is. I think that, uh, I mean, I think that there's alternative history is not the same as science fiction, but there, but, um, and maybe I have a feeling that if I had written in such a way that I said that the, that the invented airplane or invented battle uh, plane and that thing actually had won the war, mm. then you could say, mm. yes, it's alternative history, which slides into science fiction, which slides into, mm. but it doesn't. It's actually this, the, the plane never, never, never actually happened. succedes and yeah. it never it flies. Have. It mm. might have happened. And, but no, I don't think that's sufficient. I would not, to me, that was not sufficient to make it a science fiction novel. Mm. A better example in a certain way okay. to me is the translator, okay. which, yeah. which uh, was read by the people who read it the first time around, especially by Richard Eder in the New York Times when he reviewed oh. it. And he reviewed it and he said, what a wonderful book, this is really great, it's a beautiful novel, and it's poetry, and da, da, da. And then in the last third of the novel, the writer somehow just loses it. He completely <laughs> abandons everything that he set out to do and it becomes a mishmash over which he has no control. Oh. And <laughs> I said, wow, that's, that's incredible. The thing is he missed the fact that two-thirds of the way through the book, it is, becomes evident to certain kinds of readers, uh, like you uh -huh. and Peter uh -huh. and others, that it becomes what it was secretly all about from the beginning, which is a kind of fantasy novel. Yeah. Uh -huh. that, the, that the structure of the hidden gods who control yeah. things and the little gods who are uh -huh. trying to get away from them and the <laughs> sacrifice that they demand of human beings in order not to have an atomic war is really the story. <laughs> and he couldn't believe that that could possibly be the case. You just can't accept it. You just can't accept no, that right. it would turn out to a book, be a book of that kind. Mm. And you can actually, well, I, I, I was a, a teacher at UMass who had a, a course in no, a fiction of the Cold War or something mm. like that. And he used to assign this book. And a couple of times I went to a class of his, it would be big lecture classes, like 100 people. In them, and I would ask them, so do you think that the... This, this this story has this a magical supernatural element in it, or don't you? Mm. And I got about 50%. That's amazing. Which means there are people who want to read that kind of way and people who don't want That's to read that way. It was, yeah. it was fascinating. Richard Eder's reading indicates that he would rather see the novel as a failure than as a good novel <laughs> of, this, of, of this, imaginative element. Yes, yeah. right, imagination. And because because that, that, he was that, so... That, he that was would so, undercut Entirely for him. That's probably probably the case, and so he was so resistant yeah. to that reading that mm. he could only he could only perceive it as a failure. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think he I don't think he even was tempted to see no, it as a supernatural no, it's, it's supernatural fiction. It's classic blinders. It's classic realism blinders right. where he said that this this cannot be. I will not accept this. And, right. Yes. Uh, right. Right. So I have. So it's he has to ascribe to the writer the failure mm. that he was unable. Because it didn't work exactly. as a metaphor. Right. It didn't work as a metaphor. It huh. only worked if it. it to if some extent, if, if there's a, at least there's an ambiguity about whether how it could be interpreted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I he wasn't going to allow it. With Doris Lessing once about her science fiction novels, whatever the problems people may have with the Knobles and Argos novels, uh, she was complaining that all the reviewers, the 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 the, the, the TLS reviewers and New York Times reviewers, were saying this is not science fiction. This mm. is this, this is, is Doris allegorical, Lessing. visionary fiction. Yeah, that's and right. And she said. He actually said this to me. I, I was trying to write science fiction. I didn't know what went wrong with the way they were reading it, but I thought I was, I've been reading Clark and Stapleton. That's really yes, that's amazing. sad, isn't it? <laughs> Right. Well, that, the, the the impulse to extract. I mean, this is old now. I think yeah. I think this is over. Oh, yeah. so. I, the 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 impulse that readers like Richard Eder and the people who read Doris Lessing say, no, it's not mm. science fiction. No, I don't. Have to extract it from the matrix in which they found it, or which it is published or announced. Mm -hmm. I mean, the translator wasn't announced as, no. as any kind of thing. But I, th so. I think the part of the reason they can't do that, and I think part of that has been deliberate strategies on the part of writers like Michael Chabon. There's mm -hmm. nothing you can do with the Yiddish policeman's no, union right, right. other than to read it as alternate history science fiction. You right. cannot metaphorize it. You cannot no. sort of allegorize it. You right. cannot take it into a dream vision thing. He and he, I'm, I, I just talked to him briefly about it once. Mm. Uh, he thought that was kind of a sneaky, dirty thing he was doing. <laughs> <from history. laughs> we know what that he did the same thing with Cavalier and Clay. Cavalier when, and Clay. When it has this golem. 
it was yeah. actually in the story an actual as an actual golem. actual golem who was shipped around in a box. You know, uh. you know, this happens a lot. There's more. I think that somebody, Gary, this is for you to write a paper about or assign one of your graduate students to write a paper about. Iris Murdoch, one of I think it was the Sea, the Sea. I'm not sure one of her novels, but that takes place on the on the uh, summer vacation at, uh-huh. on, at the sea. Yeah. And these little kids keep running. There's two of them, a boy, a boy, and a little girl. And, the, and all the all the people are arguing about their love lives and falling in love with each other and sleeping mm-hmm. with each other and all yeah. this kind of Iris Murdoch stuff. And these kids every once in a while will come into the kitchen and say, "Mommy, they told me they told us again from the sky about not we have to start being good and not being bad." And they say, "Yes, yes, dear," and they'll go back to their uh-huh. you know, adult yeah. business. The last scene in the book is the kids are lying on the beach or on this headland uh-huh. mm. over the beach, looking up into the into the sky, and there's the flying saucers hovering over there. Right. Really? <laughs> yes. I didn't know yes. <laughs> Actually, I, I think um, that's in the nice and the good. The nice and, and, the good. and and the children are are looking through a window, and they and they. The, the thing that they've been talking about is, is really, there, really and, there. And they know they cannot tell anybody because uh, nobody's going to believe, gonna believe them. Yeah. Nobody cares about them. And but they know. That's, a, yeah. that's not a late novel, is it? No, no. No, but it's middle. It's middle. It's late middle. It's one of her best books. Well, I, I think this is a thing, and it may be more true in Britain. I mean, Kings, Kingsley Amos certainly had no trouble writing science fiction. Anthony oh, Burgess no, had right. no trouble with science right. fiction no. ideas. No, I wonder if that bias is more American. I think it's much. Well, you know what? It's like the thing that we do all the time at ReaderCon, which is sort of silly, in which the way to uh, expand the genre Mm -hmm. is to multiply the possible genres that it could contain. So that all if you get enough genres, finally it'll all just you know mm-hmm. explode into you know just general fiction so i, well, I don't know mm. who it was and it may have been jim gunn it may have been probably not because jim isn't quite this subversive but somebody made the argument that that realistic fiction is a subset of science fiction but <laughs> 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 essentially science fiction well it, it's an argument which is irresistible to level yeah. at a certain level science fiction deals with infinite possibilities and um realistic fiction that deals it deals with non-realistic. It deals with alternative worlds. Every yes. realistic yes. novel right. is an alternative right. world. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's Wessex what... doesn't exist. Especially right. Iris Murdoch. Right. Iris Murdoch. Yeah, right. 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 Absolutely. So, yeah. so that's just a narrow slice of the spectrum that in science fiction includes the entire spectrum. Right. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that's that's a good point. Nabokov said that all of the great classic novels of the realist tradition are actually great fairy tales. Well, and and they are not that. actually describing, yeah. you know, yeah. carefully detailed social right. uh, uh-huh. worlds of the past. They're no, they're yeah. they're they're describing nothing but themselves. Uh. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> Jonathan, did you have something you wanted to ask or discuss here? I guess in the in the context of the discussion that, that you're having, um, do you think that the the genre you intend to, to to write when you start out writing something makes a difference in, in what the reader experiences? And also, do you think the way in which the work is presented itself when it finally does come out makes a difference in how people tend to assess it? I mean, the example with the Pelican Bar is, you know, it came out in a science fiction anthology, so people read it as science fiction. Mm-hmm, but if it had yeah. shown up in the pages of The New Yorker, which it very well could have, nobody would have read it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a very good point. I think that's true. That's a point that, well, the last time you and I were talking with Charles, uh, and we were talking just right after the Four Freedoms had come out, and Charles and I had both read it from a science fiction perspective, which explains what I did earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And the translator, uh, which I didn't read until afterwards, but the way you explained that. And Peter, as far as, as when you get get to things like In the Night Room, uh, you're... It's kind of novel that creates a problem with those of us who have academic literary training because it's a narr- it's a metafictional thing. It's got all metafictional stuff going on. Yeah. It's novels, stories within stories within stories, and it's also really scary. Hmm. Um, yes, and me. is being scary enough to make something a horror novel, even when it's doing literary tricks like this? Uh, you know, I don't really think I care. Um, <laughs> I mean. At, at, that, at that level, um, the ground-based definition isn't, isn't what is a, a, of importance to me. 
Um, so do you think, if I can put in just for my own uses mm -hmm. in reading you, do you think that you are still writing things that are scary or you are using are you using scary as a way to move a story around to the way you to your own liking? Uh, does that make very, any sense? Very, yeah, it does. It, 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 it ought to. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's more the latter, except that I'm not I'm never really concerned with being scary. Oh. Um, that I used to be, and I, I used to have a very um, uh, good knowledge, really, of, of what kinds of things to do that would frighten readers, that would make re readers feel fear or dread. Uh -huh. And then I did that over and over and over, and I got tired of it. And um, it always surprises me when people say of a book like In the Night Room that they find it scary. Now, um, In the Night Room is pretty dark. Yes. And there are pretty yeah. nasty things in it. There's something you said to me, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in the night when we were talking yeah. about. Uh, uh, it might have been... Uh, it's a pretty matter, strange but, word. But, I mean, we were talking about one of your novels, and you finished it, and I think it was in the night room. It had to be in the night room. Yeah. And you told me, it's all done, except I forgot to put in the scary bits. <laughs> you, you, you know, that was... Um, that, I don't. Th I I think that was Lost Boy, Lost, Lost Girl. Lost Boy, Lost Girl. Okay. Yeah, because it occurred to me that had I been writing that book in the '80s, th there would have been a wham bang, super duper, supercharged chase through that uh, mm -hmm. spooky house, uh, yeah. and and the 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 boy fleeing the terrible, um, uh, you know, murderer and pederast or uh, uh, pedophile. Um, would have to hide in, in this trunk that's filled with human hair, um, mm. just because it's there in the beginning. Right? <laughs> a trunk full of human hair, and 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 that that would be gruesome and horrible, and uh, there would be a lot of scuttling through you know secret spaces in the house, and I kind of thought when I was doing it, I kind of saw, saw myself moving toward that. And I thought, okay, well, that'll be not, you know that'll be fun to do, but. When 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 I got to that point, I wasn't at all interested in doing it, and I totally forgot that that had been my plan. You're writing a horror novel and you forgot the horror. But but it was a much better book. Um, but what it wasn't was a 1980s book. Um, you know. But I had a conversation um, with you, and maybe it been about that or about something else. And I had a similar conversation years later with Laird Barrett, who's a very talented writer. He's wonderful, yeah. And, and both of you said the same thing about scary stuff, which is, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. Yeah. It's almost like Hitchcock knowing, I know how to frame a suspense scene. Yeah. And, and, and that's not what you're going after anymore, which is one of the things that strikes <laughs> me as interesting about some amateur writers is that when they try to write a, a conceptual science fiction story or a horror story or a fantasy story, they think that the moves, the choreography, is all there is. Mm. And, and an experienced writer, and I'm sure you know how to do this, and I'm sure Stephen King knows how to do this, the scary part isn't the challenging part. No. That's just, that's tools you pull out of your box. Uh, in, yeah. effect, in effect, the scary part of a horror novel is the MacGuffin. Well, yeah. 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 It's the thing that organizes the plot, the thing that yeah. is, causes it to be. It couldn't be without that because it would nothing would happen and nothing mm. would nobody would be impelled to do anything. Yeah. So it does that. But and of course, as we all know, the MacGuffin is and Hitchcock complained about it endlessly. You're gonna be writing a story about something you care about, something you want to write about, but the MacGuffin has to take up all the time. Yeah. The, the MacGuffin <laughs> has to organize the stuff properly. You can't change what you want to. Right. Do so yeah. all you can change is the MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. right. you change, how is it? Is he going to kill the person, or is he only going to just mutilate him? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If he mutilates him, do I get the? I do. Does that action cause what I want to have happen in the and story? And yeah. saw that as nothing more than a technical problem. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, exactly. I know how to do it. Once I get, once exactly. I get the MacGuffin to do what I wanted to do, of course I can make people think that the movie's about the MacGuffin. <laughs> no, when it isn't at all. Exactly. exactly. For me, I mean. I, I think this is an example of what we're talking about. I certainly hope so, um, because it leaps immediately to mind. For me, in the novel In the Night Room, the, the absolute most riveting and a way most frightening part of the book, uh, moment of the book, has, has, occurs when, when, when the narrator 
drives his character, Willie, to a, to a cul-de-sac. And they look through the windows of a house at the far back yes. of the cul-de-sac. And, and uh, in other words, a, ho- a house that is uh, safeguarded and, and, and almost barricaded by woods at the back and protected by other mm-hmm. houses. And they look in the window and they see the young woman who is really the heart of all these stories. Yes. The, the, the woman who was really the daughter of the murderer calendar, who was, who was, who was a feral child and passed in and out of um, orphanages and institutions, was adopted by a very, very loving patient couple that for, for some reason at one point gave the girl a Charles Dickens novel, which saved the girl's life. But we know this girl is a very tricky case. She's not exactly like other people. And she knows that she's not like other people, which is why she's never married. Mm-hmm. She lives alone. She serves other people as a doctor, but she doesn't have much to do with them later. And we look in the window, here's this blonde woman carrying a cup of tea and walks across the, the, the window. And I thought, that's the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we see her, and 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 the character Willie says to her author, "That's her, isn't it? Mm. That's your ideal woman. Mm. That's that's the woman you really love. You don't love me. You love her." But this is also a fictional <laughs> character who has entered into the real world in some way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating metafictional novel. I mean, one of the things that my favorite chapter in the novel, as you know, yeah. is a chapter in which there's a young boy detective uh, who has nothing to do with the novel at all, except <laughs> that the author who writes these series of novels about a young boy detective has been murdered. Yeah. And then we get a chapter in which the boy detective suddenly finds this world frozen around him. Yeah. He will never be able to do anything. The sunlight's again. never right to live. The mystery will never be solved. The sunlight is off because his author is dead. That's great. That just repeat the same thing over and over. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Which is a lot like reading some genre fiction. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. It's a, it's a little bit like that, that style of genre fiction. In fact, I was just reading about an Italian mystery novel series. I huh. can't remember the name of it. It was reviewed in the TLS, in which the uh, detective uh, is conducting some kind of investigation. And he gets it all it gets all confused or thrown off because they're making a movie uh-huh. in the middle of the story. They're making a movie out of one of the previous novels about him. <laughs> oh my god. And he gets, you know, he kept people trying to come get his autograph and stuff like that because they're filming one of these previous novels. Which he appears. There's a I mean, you know, can you get away with that? I, I, I don't know. There's a there's a wonderful Verda oh, yeah. movie called The Spider Stratagem, which is based mm-hmm. on a Borges story called The Theme of Traitor and Hero. Oh yeah, right. And it's one of those it, it reminded me a little bit of these levels of reality because you you you're going into a story about somebody the Borges story was essentially about somebody who was a hero, and then, well, no, he was really a traitor, but then below that, he was really a hero, and oh, it right. sort of goes yes. on down. Right. And uh, <laughs> the story, the Bertolucci film does that visually very well, and we're finally, we finally end up with a shot of the railroad tracks that are central to the story in various ways I can't describe, completely overgrown with weeds. <laughs> and is it the weeds or the railroad tracks that are the real core of the story? <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing I think is... I mean, you start off with different kinds of ambitions as a writer. <clears throat> you, there, there are various things you want to do. But down inside, there are things that are central to your impulses, even mm-hmm. though they don't come out in your first books because you don't, you're not good enough mm-hmm. yet. You can't, yeah. you can't achieve those things. Yeah. But you know them anyway. Mm-hmm. And there are certain moments in, other, in, in the novels, the stories that you've read that you say, and they get buried inside you. Say, I want to do that. Yeah. That if I could ever do that, that's what I want to yeah. do. And you can assemble. You can actually describe some of those moments. Probably not all of them, even. You mm. know. But there are. You know. I think that I have moments like that in in fiction that I read. I said, Oh, that that mm. I want to do. Yeah. I mean, I can remember in Treasure Island the the moment oh. at, the, at the when when uh, the the kid after the Hispaniola gets free from its moorings and it's now got, it's completely unmanned mm-hmm. and it's like floating around the island. Mm-hmm. Float, it's on mm-hmm. the currents, floating yeah. around his, the, mm-hmm. the island. 
and Jim is try, catches up with it and climbs aboard and tries to get control of this of this huge ship. It is so beautifully written, yeah. and it has no reason to exist except for the beauty of the yeah, things. That's, right. that's, that's what I would like to do. But don't you? You must be yeah. aware by now that there are, there's a generation of younger writers who read Little Big and think, I wish I could do that. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Well, that would be really amazing. It, it does really... happen. I've talked to them. I know oh, they okay. are. Right. I give the names. I give the email address. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's pretty amazing. If I could feel, if it's I could feel that, I mean, that's great. Uh... That's really, that's remarkable. Well, both, both of you have written un, undeniable classics. And is there a sense that, okay, I can do any, there's, there are two things, it seems to me, I've, I've talked to a number of writers who can do this, I mean, they're, they're the writers like Daniel Keyes, who have, I've written for Flowers for All John, so I can write anything I want to know because I don't have to ever try to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, and there are writers who keep trying to best themselves. You, bo you both have acknowledged classics, they're canonical works in their field. Is that something that liberates you to write whenever you want, or is it something that thinks, I, I gotta try to do that again? I never have thought about it. Go ahead. It's Go ahead. Not, not something that occurs to me at all. I mean, you know, no. I write, I don't have a sense I should write another thing like the thing I wrote before. I yeah. never, I don't feel compelled in that way at all. It's, I write the kinds of things that occur to me to be written. And uh, hmm. they, exactly. they are all, they, they tend to be all very different from one another, which is a problem. I mean, they, they tend not to be organizable under. A kind, mm, yeah. which that's can be, what, it can what, be. That's what critics like ourselves do. <laughs> well, you know what? The, my first book, The Deep, was published by Doubleday, mm -hmm. which also published uh, um, Lynn Carter. Mm. Yeah. At least part, a bunch of Lynn Carter. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't think anybody published all of Lynn Carter. Mm -hmm. but, and at one point, I was sent out to do a reading. Not a reading, a book, a book signing, mm -hmm. with another writer who wanted his book. His uh, he was from Brick Church, New Jersey, mm -hmm. and and uh, the little bookstore in Brick Church, New Jersey, wanted to have a reading with this guy and applied to Doubleday to have a reading. Mm -hmm. and they said, "Well, I don't know. This is like some first novel. I don't know. Maybe I'll get some other writers. We'll send you some other writers." Uh -huh. So they sent me and mm -hmm. Lynn Carter along with this wow. guy to sign books, mm -hmm. and I had one little book, and mm -hmm. actually I had two at that point. And he had one little book, and Lynn Carter had these stacks and stacks of books. <laughs> and uh, we were we were riding home on this van provided by Doubleday. This is the old times. And Lynn said, "Loved your book." I said, "Oh, thank you." And he said, "So when's the when's the sequel coming out? When's the next one coming?" Out? And I said, "Well, I don't know. I never thought. I mean, it, it's done. You know, it's, that's that. It's, that story's <laughs> over." No. He said, oh, no, no, what are you talking about? He says, you create all the trouble to create all these characters in this milieu, and you're not going to use it again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the whole world? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It was the first time that I, it occurred to me that that's what I was supposed to do as a working writer, really, yeah. is to turn this to account yeah. you know, and make that's more right. of them. Because yeah. you know? it's, it's, it's just never, never seemed to me that that's anything that's I, likely to be done. No. Well, we, we probably shouldn't mention a name here, but there was a dinner a couple of, a few years ago at this conference, and I think Peter, you were at it as well, where a certain best-selling writer, not unlike Lynn Carter, was trying to explain to you about world building. Oh, him. Oh, him. Oh, yeah. yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. He had, a, he had, he was the most, he's like, he reminded me of that guy, of the guy I met in, in college, who explained to me how you build a life, not oh, just yeah. a world of oh, fiction. Really? <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to take these and these courses, and I, I plan yeah. to get an engineering degree, mm -hmm. but with an accountancy degree on the side, because I want to be able to be, you know, mm -hmm. my, own, you know, my own business, and, uh, and then I'll get married, and the wife has mm -hmm. to be, you know, not too beautiful, because that's too tempting to the men, but good enough looking to... <laughs> the game and, you know, of so, life. So, <laughs> he, had, he had a doubt, he was going to, right up to retirement, right. he had well. to do everything. I thought, are there really people like that in the world? <laughs> so, so cold. I can't, I can't conceive of thinking of my building a life like that, <laughs> and I can't conceive of building books but like I, that. I, but I, 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 we all know who we're talking about. But, well, we but must not say. We must not say quite yet. But there is a sense in which there, and this is true of science fiction as well as fantasy, there, there is this attitude that if you start with... Um, it's extreme, I suppose, it's a Hal Clement attitude. You start with a star system, and then imagine a planet, and then imagine the ecology of the planet, and then imagine the 
uh, evolution of the continents on that, and then imagine what kind of societies might. And eventually, if you go through this process, you'll end up with a character. And the characters are the least important thing. It's the last oh. thing you come up with. And the well. other way of approaching it, which I assume both of you and uh, partake in, as, as I do as a reader, mm. you start with a character and figure out where the world is from there. Mm, right. Uh, and they are... They both produce novels. Both processes will produce novels. Yeah, right. But they, yeah. they, they can both actually produce science fiction or fantasy or horror novels. Yeah. But they're novels coming from opposite directions. Um, uh, and and I, think, I think readers can see that. I think readers can see fantasy novels and their characters are literally interchangeable. Oh, that's certainly true. That's yeah. certainly true. But that's not why you would... I mean, I can imagine constructing a novel the way the first, the first mm -hmm. method that you described. Mm. I think that would be. I think that in a certain sense, I was drawn to thinking in those kinds of ways. You know, building imaginary worlds, and then. Mm. But I knew that the characters would somehow be a product of the world, and therefore yeah. different from any other kinds of persons. So they couldn't be interchangeable. Yeah. You know, no, they, they, so there's there was an experiment by, <coughs> by Harlan uh, Ellison uh, called Medea, in which he had. I don't think he had. Jonathan, you can correct me. I think he had Hal Clement or. Yeah. Larry Niven was part of it. They invented this star system. They invented a planet. They, they did all the scientific stuff. And then, once they had the lay, that laid out, invited a group of writers to write stories set in that world. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, some of the stories were actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. But the stories that were pretty good were the ones that paid the least attention to the physical right. dynamics uh, of the world as right. described by the hard SF. Right. Mm. Well, if you can do it, if you can construct a world and then have people behave in it as though it were a world that the reader knows just like they know this real world, except mm -hmm. they don't know it. Except they don't. And, and they can pick up the clothes as, as they're handed them. That's that's the wonderful way well, of doing it. Jonathan and I were talking a couple of weeks ago on the podcast with him, John Harrison, in England. Mm. And we, were, we, we got into a sort of side discussion of Arthur Mackin. And mm. Arthur Mackin, who is probably one of those writers who has influenced fantasy, horror, and science fiction equally, in equal yeah. measure, over the last hundred years or so. Um, the, way, the, way that, the way Mike Harrison described it was there is this kind of eminence, there's this kind of British tradition of an alternate world within our world, huh. where you, you write a world um, in the, the great god Pan, which yeah. is one of the great influential oh my uh, stories of the 20th century. I mean, it's, it's, but if you, look <laughs> the, if you look at the heritage of that world, it's it's in horror fiction, it's in science fiction, it's in mm. fantasy, it's yeah. all over. And it all implies that there is a world with, we don't recognize within the world we experience. That's true. Which is but, a very seductive uh, a very point of view. Yes, yeah. but isn't it, isn't that H.P. Lovecraft's point of view, too? Sure. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's H.P. Lovecraft's Mahler to Mackin's Mozart. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good that's way of putting it. Yes. I prefer Mahler. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> you could say H.P. Lovecraft is Meyer beer to Mahler's Mozart. Right. The, the reason you need to know people, people like George Catelby is you need to know about him because he was the composer who matched the kind of bad pre-Raphaelite paintings. <laughs> William Holman Hunt, the, the scapegoat and that sort of yeah. thing. And it was, it was always in an oriental garden, in a Chinese garden, programming. <laughs> exactly. But they work really well in that right context. It was like steampunk music. <laughs> go, go on... Catelby, Catelby, K-E-T-E-L-B-Y. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so what have we not covered, Jonathan, or are we? I think we've covered most things we, that, that, that we might cover, unless it's sort of the joy of attending pro parties at conventions. Can you, uh, <laughs> the meet the pros party, we are in the... We were using this podcast to escape. Oh, you're not allowed to say that. I'll have yeah. to cut that out of the podcast, Gary. Well, it's true. Uh, no, we can, can cut you that out. Tell us what, you, what you're working on. Do you want to tell us what you're working on? Well, I'm, I've, I've been working on um, 
uh, novel for two and a half or three years. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail about it, or any really. Um, I've, I've got a long way to go, and I'm trying to um, prepare the ground by seeing what I might write bef before I get to write it, and, and doing a sort of fast forward version. And because I have a lot of it kind of um, in, in, in mind with, with, without having all the, pro the progressions mm -hmm. set up and, and the little climaxes set up. Uh, so if I can organize that, so I, I will know at a certain, <clears throat> when a guy gets out of a car, what is, what's going to happen <clears throat> when he goes into the house he's visiting, then, then it, I, I won't have to moan and groan over the computer for two days while, <laughs> while I try to make something yeah. out, you know? Um, is this it, written within the, any of the circumstances that you've already written within? It is. Uh, it it is. It, it makes use of uh, the Hayward family from uh, Dark Matter and from uh, that rather grisly story, A Special Place. Um, the Haywards, uh, Keith uh, Tillman Hayward had, has two siblings. One one a kind of Simple-minded failure works on the can factory, mm. uh, who is the father of the hideous Keith. And the other is a very beautiful woman, born Margaret, but who changed her name to Margot, and married an extremely, in fact, dazzlingly, impressively rich character, who was a beast, <laughs> none, nonetheless, but uh, was one of the first people to acquire companies and fold them together and uh, um, kind of package companies to together and it begins it begins with his death and uh, leads through a whole series of hideous events to um, <laughs> to the death of the brother uh, T Tillman who's a, who's one of the worst human beings ever born and uh, <laughs> and the sister who's at, at the end of the book the richest woman the second richest woman in America um, uh, has a, actually, killed her husband on his deathbed and uh, has with Till Tillman's kind of unacknowledged uh, cooperation arranged for him to be killed behind a tavern. Um, so she begins by killing her husband and ends by killing her brother and she's our heroine. God, that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds really good. Like, thank you. Uh, the, uh, a horror Sinclair Lewis novel. <laughs> it's got time travel. Oh, that time travel. <laughs> it's got a great painting in it. It's got it has a great, a great. Uh, they got, how about a horror icon without naming him? But there's an iconic horror figure in it. So ah. it's a terror figure. Hmm. Uh, ah. And John, uh, you keep saying one of these days you're going to come back to science fiction. Hmm. Well, I'm not going to come back to science fiction. I, or I doubt that I would come back to science fiction. But I am writing a novel now that uh, <clears throat> after being away from things classifying, classified at first glances hmm. as uh, fantasy, hmm. Uh, hmm. as you point out, any one of them could be regarded as fantasy hmm. with a little bit of a push. But uh, um, really weren't certainly genre classification. Uh, I've decided that yeah, I mean they were good and they were I'm very proud of them as books, but they didn't gain me the kind of readership that I had extra or new readership yeah. that I kind of hoped for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, I'm now working on one that is really a fantasy novel. Mm -hmm. Okay, it is a could be called a beast epic, mm -hmm. which is a sort of genre mm -hmm. of. Beasts. Mm. I did beasts. This is even mm. more so. This well, is okay. really, more beastly than beasts. This is yeah. talking animals. All right. Or there's one go. talking animal. It's about a crow. Mm -hmm. Talking crow. And uh, it's even even more than that. Even it is about the the interaction of a, a single crow with generations, uh, even centuries of human beings. Mm -hmm. Because it's a this crow turns out to be an immortal. You've well, been reading Ted right. Hughes, haven't you? <laughs> no, not, my crow is not Ted Hughes' crow. Hughes's Ted Hughes' crow. crow is Ted Hughes' crow. My crow is a crow. Ted Hughes' crow is a crow seen from a human being's point of view, or huh. certain opinions about crows. Even though it's within the crow, it's still a human being's crow. Yeah, I guess. My crow, I tried to make at least, in a simple, straightforward kind of way, a crow. 
inside as well as outside. So his viewpoint is a crow's viewpoint. Crow's viewpoint, absolutely. No, no, no. The story is the story is is about him. It's told by a uh, human person to whom the story has been told by the crow. Mm-hmm. And huh. you don't find out who that person is till close to the end of the book. But, huh. And he's living in the present day. But the story about the crow goes far back into dim hmm. reaches of human Medieval. history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about death. Okay. And crows is this book crows death. and death? Crow's death and the and the human world of death, which the crow doesn't quite understand, but it ends up visiting. Huh. <laughs> Just asking. Just ask him, is the book great. complete? No. No, no, it's about half done. It sounds wonderful. But, but meanwhile, like we while. have something coming up like, I don't know, the 10th anniversary of the 30th anniversary of Little Big or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's going to be a gorgeous book. It's going to be great. I've seen some of the pages from it. Absolutely. It that's certainly good. will be. It went and if it actually appears. But it will happen. It, it will happen. happen. It will happen. It's it just, will? Yes, it definitely will. Uh, the book is encouraging. Is effectually complete. It's got a little bit more to do it, but it mm-hmm. effectually is complete. Then huh. the only thing that happens has to happen is the actual printing production and all yeah, that kind of right. stuff, which is yeah. uh, uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's a stumbling block last time around. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, I think three years ago, I think I was at uh, John Barry Knight at Elaine Gunn's house, looking at the pages it done then. Oh, yes. This is stunning. This it is, is really it's yeah. absolutely really. amazing. It probably should never have been undertaken. Mm. It's too expensive and too complicated, and it took far too long to produce. But if it if it ever actually does achieve mm. existence, it will be amazing. It will be really, really amazing. <laughs> so everybody should keep an eye out. The new edition, the definitive illustrated, illuminated is a yeah. <laughs> right, illuminated yes. edition of, of, of Little Big, Little which, which, as we've all said, is as everybody knows, that was one of the great American classics of fantasy. Absolutely. We shall include a link to it, a link so that you can pre-order it with when the podcast goes up. <laughs> but, but Gary, I, I, I think we might might use this as an opportunity to wind up because we're pretty much at the end of our hour. So it might be worth thanking uh, both John and Peter for joining us. It's been wonderful to have you here, and and for allowing for me at least to sit here and listen in on the conversation as much as anything. It's been a really really interesting hour. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Uh, My and, pleasure. And, we've, and we've been just inhumanly keeping these people from a party, which they both just adore. <laughs> heartless, heartless man. Uh, <laughs> keeping me from my bed. But oh, uh, you're right. <laughs> well, okay, let's stop recording now, and we can chat for a minute afterwards. Okay. I'll leave. So yeah. I will talk to you again next week, if not sooner, John. Absolutely. I'll talk to you again soon uh, when we once again record the podcast. Until now, until then, thank you again, gentlemen. And we remain now, as always, the Mullers of Cooch Street.